legend tells of a man of the Vale, a doctor of sorts. He helped mortals and frights alike find healing and solace. When he heard what the Alzarians were doing to the frights, he fought back. Frights of every element came to his aid, but especially the luminous frights. After the sundering, he vanished, and the luminous frights with him. The legend of the Veilman began there. The question was, where did he go? Cult 1440 presents Echoes of Exesar, Season 3, Episode 4, Sanctuary. together inside a shrine. Myself, a displaced wanderer, Ketra, the islander, and ten masked stoics, ever watchful. To my left, an ancient crystal glowed with unknowable light. And at my feet, a child that defied everything I knew to be true. I didn't know what to make of any of it yet feel the electricity in the air, the way the child's cries commanded our silence, maybe even our reverence. I felt I was witnessing the birth of a new age in Exesar. Whether it was for good or ill, though, remained to be seen. Ketra knelt down and scooped the child out of the soul quiver. She was swaddled in a white material that looked plush and warm but somehow gave off a light, almost silken sheen. Ketra bounced the child in her arms, cooing softly. Almost on cue, the child's cries quelled. I watched, stunned, at Ketra's nonchalance, as if she was cradling any other baby. That's the first luminous kindred seen in over a thousand years. I breathed. You're holding a living myth. Ketra looked at me, confused. M- Mitha? No. Kurila. She is... child. Her answer left me slack-jawed. Could she really be that aloof? 
and that word, Kurila. Where have I heard that before? I ran my fingers tightly through my hair, as though trying to keep my skull from splitting to pieces. I... I don't understand, I confessed. What do you mean, child of doorways? What is she to you? Fear darkened Ketra's face. She held the child tighter, as though afraid the breeze would steal her away. He seeks her. When Varian, the hairs on the back of my neck bristled. So the god of masks was responsible, I thought. No doubt it had something to do with his bride. I know the name, I said. What does he want with her? Ketra frowned, her walnut-brown eyes dancing with the question. He... he will use her. Open all doorways. Everything will come. Nothing will leave. I pondered at her words. She was trying her best to explain, but the lack of clarity was frustrating. I tried to fill in the blanks myself. The ice-blue veins of the island snaked into my mind's eye. The shade, I thought. It's the in-between of worlds, or so Isolde had said. Even she didn't know the full extent of its power. The ebon mist is a path through the forest, she said to me once during training. The shade is the trees, the ground, the rivers, and the sky. There are as many ways to travel as there are travelers. Granted, I had not made much of his old statement at the time, likely because I was too busy learning to wield the mist in between her snide comments. I had only ever used the shade as a means to parlay with frights. When I was possessed by Ellipsis, the shade was my prison. But there was so much more to it, if I was understanding Ketra correctly. If Winvarian could unlock the Shade's secrets, there would be no end to what he could do. He could throw open the floodgates, let all manner of horrors into this plane of existence. It would make Black Sun look like a butter knife. I think I understand, I assured Ketra. But how can the child be of use? What is her fright's power? Can she even use it at such a young age? Even as I spoke, I knew the questions were too much. Ketra shook her head, apologetic. I... I am not having the words. Let others explain. Who are the... family? Ketra explained. My Kauluru. And my clan. I take you to them. A note of familiarity rang in my ears. Kurila, Kauluru. These were woolen words. Was there a settlement on this island? I cast a glance out at the horizon. Nothing but jungle and ocean past the hills. How are we to get there? I asked. That man Raxo is surely on our trail. And now we've got a little one with us. Ketra's face blossomed once more into a pleasant smile. I could almost see a tinge of mischief in the corners of her lips. Home is... close. She approached me, 
holding the child out in offering. Carefully, I took her. The child looked up at me with her wide, scarlet-red eyes. One of her pale, pudgy hands gripped my chin. She stared in unblinking wonderment. I couldn't shake the feeling that I was being observed by the fright as well. Despite my misgivings, I felt an almost supernatural sense of calm as soon as I held her. Relief washed over me, like a soothing rain after a blistering heat. Worry left me, as did pain and exhaustion. Suddenly, I winced as I felt an odd sensation from my wounds. The muscles in my shoulder from where I'd been torn out of the shack on the beach began to twist and contract. It was not unpleasant, however. In fact, it felt as though those things were reasserting themselves, as if the damage was being overwritten, edited like a draft of a story. I smiled despite myself. Now I could understand Ketra's calmness towards the child. How could one be anything but, when one touch could do all of this? As I held the child, I watched Ketra take point in the center of the circular shrine. She faced the still-glowing crystal, kneeling in front of it. Placing her hand on the glass casing, she closed her eyes. It was all I could do not to drop the child when I saw her facial markings glow. A brilliant red light filled all six ovals around her eyes. When she opened her eyes, they glowed too, red and opaque like a draylish. Together they made her look like a kind of spider woman. Unease settled into me as I took another look at the gentlefolk around us. How well their mossy, greenish-brown robes covered their silhouettes. How I had trouble locating the seam between the robes and the shell-like rucksacks on their backs. And then there'd been the one on the beach, standing apparently in mid-air. Unless they'd been standing on something imperceptible in the darkness. Something thin and very, very strong. I am Ketra of the Isle of Ranta, the young woman announced. This time her trade speech was confident, practiced to perfection. Kin of the gentlefolk, I seek audience with the spirits of this place. It was as if the whole world was a pane of glass, and Ketra was a hammer. An overlapping image of everything appeared. The shrine, the hills, the fairy ponds. Our physical bodies remained in place, while our spirits launched into a realm of floating glass shards, ice-blue mist, and glowing veins in the ground. The shade. I had been here before, but this time, something felt different. Like we had not only traveled to the shade, but to another world entirely. As if in answer to my musings, a bright light shined from up above. I looked up, and gasped at the sight of a sprawling, upside-down city, floating on a massive rock in the sky. A dome of glittering water covered the city. Somehow, the water did not fall out, but maintained an almost mirror-like sheen. Schools of the same fairy fish I'd seen in the ponds flit about like arrows. Houses, 
tunnels and towers made of coral jutted about. Their spiny walls were painted in vibrant mandalas, and the hollow holes throughout each building were decorated with everything from clamshells to seaweed to fish bones. Ketra stood up and held out her hand to me. Come. Shaking out of my awe, I looked back down at the child. Her spirit form had followed mine into the Shade Realm. I expected to see her fright with her, or for that matter, Ketra's. But the child's form simply retained the same warm haze of light just below the surface of her skin. As for the gentlefolk, they did not seem to have crossed over. I could still see their physical forms looming eerily over ours in the shrine. Will we be all right here? I asked, gesturing to our bodies. Ketra nodded. Shrine hides us. Gentlefolk protect. We were well beyond the point of no return. I took her hand. Instantly, we levitated. Our spirits floated towards the airborne city. As we drew closer, I began to see the denizens of the city milling about. There were indeed Wula, swimming inside the water dome with surprising alacrity. I had only ever seen them on land, and they usually appeared more casual and calm. Something about being in their element must bring out their true selves. These Wula wore outfits similar to Ketra's, loose leather jerkins with fishnets woven into the chest pieces. Ribbons and beads of every color dangled from their hemlines, streaming behind them like fishtails as they swam. Idly, I began to wonder what we would do for air once we reached the dome. I had never needed to breathe in the shade before, but then again, I had never encountered a water city in it before either. My fears were assuaged when I saw other creatures walking on solid ground. Agile, monkey-like beings with bright green hair and oversized hands. Towering, lanky golems made of wood, moss, and vines. Inscrutable clouds of black haze, with strange runestones glowing and spinning in their orbit. Humans were there too, along with Draelish, Urso, and Kikte. I watched the Kikte fly through the water as if it were air. This place, I asked Ketra, how does it work? Alukia gives what the spirit needs, Ketra replied. Alu, in your speak, sanctuary. Ketra, the child, and I passed through the surface of the water dome. Sure enough, on the other side I could breathe just fine. As soon as we entered the barrier, my stomach lurched. It was like my whole world flipped around. We were now descending towards the city. Fish and bird alike passed us on our way towards the ground. I heard bubbling water and gales of wind in equal measure. I felt disoriented, yet enchanted. A place designed to meet the needs of all who come to it. Followers of the Five would call this place the Aiden Vale, the promised paradise. We touched down on the streets of Sanctuary, wide, welcoming roads made of pearl. Monkeys and tree golems parted to allow us room to move around, 
ran my fingers along one of the textured coral buildings, marveled at how bright everything looked, despite being nestled in such a dark place as the shade. I caught Ketra's eye, and she smiled at me. It is good, yes? It's... it's unlike anything I've ever seen, I admitted. There is more, Ketra said. She gestured for me to follow her. Weaving through the Pearl Streets, we left the bustling main drag behind. The city itself seemed alive and watchful. Camouflaged crabs uprooted from the sides of the walls. Eyeballs on top of stalks gazed on from patches of seaweed. A sudden breeze blew into a dervish, and the dust inside formed a cackling face. It raged down an alleyway, then disappeared. Are they frights? I asked Ketra as we walked. She nodded. They seek sanctuary. We protect from Winvarian. Our street opened up into a massive courtyard. Three large holes the size of mansions dotted the earth before us. Wula and Kikte alike dove in and out of the holes. A few floated in midair as sentries, keeping watch. They were armed with spectral lances and bows. Upon closer inspection, I saw the holes were more like inverted towers. Innumerable rooms scored the earthen walls down inside. As we approached, two Wula guards swam down to meet us. They touched down onto the street and met our eyes. One had an unsightly scar running down his bald scalp and through his right eye. The other was young, sporting three solid black bar tattoos, one on either cheek and one running down the top of his head. They seemed to recognize Ketra, but the presence of myself and the child made them grip their weapons all the same. Ketra, Wokalakima, said the Wula with the scar. Etna Luma Aniko? Aga, Runamani Bolamanu, Ketra replied. Kuluru Roka Oren, Etna Luma Eo Eo. I had no idea what she said but both of the Wula's black eyes widened. They fixated on the child and took a step closer. Eo eo? Nia, Ketra affirmed. Kokala, trailayama luma, kumia eo. Both Wula nodded fiercely. Nia, Nia! Without another word, they kicked off into the air, swimming in a perfect downward arc into one of the pits. I looked at Ketra. Was it something you said? Ketra frowned, not understanding my phrase. She gestured to the Wula. They are bringing Kumia, and her advisor. She is being Jika Wul, and leader of my people. She smiled, then added, She is also being my mother. I take it she is a Wula? Ketra nodded in understanding. Nia, yes. She find me when I am being young in years. Kumia find me, give home, to others also. If you don't mind me asking, what happened to your birth family? 
She was trying to hide it, to mask her feelings. But as she looked to the sky, I could see a glimmer of hatred burning just behind her eyes. When she spoke again, it was with an ashen raspiness I hadn't heard from her before. She simply replied, Raxo. We fell silent. I instantly felt terrible for bringing it up. My mind called up images of the undead thralls on the beach. Could one of them have been? I shook my head clear of the thought. Deciding to change the subject, I asked, If there are mortals here in Sanctuary, where are their bodies? Below the earth, Ketra said. Hidden. They rest. Eat. Explore. Scout for Kumia. Always return. And when Varian can't find this place? Even with the frights living here? Ketra shook her head. No can find. Alukia hidden. Even to gods. But who made this place? And how can so many souls reside here at once? Ketra looked at me, puzzled. I had to refine my question. I thought on it, looking around me at the citizens of Sanctuary. I couldn't imagine all of them were kindred. That means they were here because of another kindred's power channeled through the shade. But even at the height of my bond with Isolde, I could never hope to send even a fraction of this population into the shade by myself. Nor could I ever build a city this impressive. Most constructs in the shade were made from mental willpower. Things like the tables and chairs I'd made when I parlayed with the warden and Sunscape. But this was on a whole other level entirely. Who made Sanctuary? I tried again. Who brought you all here? Ketra processed my words slowly, then smiled and said, Kumia. Before I could reply, I saw the two Wula sentries swim out from the pit, accompanied by two more figures. They were flying behind the sentries, on glass-like discs made of energy. The first was an elderly Wula woman, green-skinned, with yellow and black piping around her mouth, eyes, and neck. Age had intensified the natural frog-like features of her face. She stood about four feet tall, but wore high woodblock shoes and a high-collar cape that made her appear much taller. Her dress was a kaleidoscope of colors, yellows, browns, greens, and reds. They covered her body in sharp, star-like patterns. A pearl-white circlet mounted with a sculpture of the sea god Aowu rested on her head. She held a purple scepter that made a large circle at the top. She held a purple scepter that made a large circle at the top. Spinning in the center was a runestone the size of a grapefruit. It made a high-pitched chirping noise as they sped through the air, as though a dozen unseen birds trailed behind it. I was about to ask Ketra how I should greet Kamiya, when the sight of her advisor froze my body in amber. He was a human, roughly fifty years old, tall, broad-shouldered, 
a round, bearded face with a wide mouth and dimples, a blunt nose that had been broken too many times before. What I remembered as coffee-colored hair had turned snow white. His face looked weathered and tired. Hard living had painted new wrinkles on the tapestry of his face, but a honed sharpness still glinted in his deep-set brown eyes. An unsightly burn scar marred the top right of his forehead. Alert and poised, his body was wound tight as a spring. He looked ready to fight to the death at a moment's notice. The years had not been kind to my father. We met eyes well before they touched down. The sight of me caused Gareth of Shalecross to nearly lose his balance off the floating disc. As soon as he was close to the ground, he leapt off the disc, approaching me. His face was a tangled mess of elation and wariness. I passed the child over to Ketra, refusing to take my eyes off of him. I felt my own breath becoming shaky. His gaze summoned tears to my cheeks. A typhoon of memories tore through my mind. My father, the glass blower. My father, who used to make up stories to tell me at bedtime to fall asleep. My father, kidnapped and tortured by the Inquisitor. So many memories, forgotten recovered, and now relived. It's you, my father whispered. His voice was wafer thin, as though if he spoke too loud I would disappear into dust. Gods, for years I've... Is it really you, Rowan? It is, I choked. It's me. We embraced. Every other concern vanished in that moment. When Varian, the child, sanctuary. For a glorious moment, none of it mattered. For nearly four years, I had been through the pit and back, trying to piece together my broken life. One look at my father told me his journey had been no different. Ever since my contract with Isolde, I'd felt like I'd slowly been slicing away at my own heart. It was a wound that would never fully heal. Now, though, at long last, my father and I could at least put down the knife. After a moment that felt like eternity, we separated. Wiping tears from his face, my father suddenly remembered the context of our meeting. He returned to Kamiya's side. Sumaya, he said to her with a bow. Apologies, Chika. This... He is... The one you tell me about, croaked Kamiya softly. Her eyes were like two perfect obsidian orbs, soaking in the light as she peered at me. Rowan of Shale Cross. Though you have another name now, yes? I nodded. 
Yes, if it please you, you may call me Claude Von Der. Ketra cast me a side eye. Not Orin? Sheepishly, I smiled at her. Forgive me, I didn't know if I could trust you. Von Der, my father said. So the rumors. The man who defeated Everwake. The one who stopped Black Sun. You're a kin of the Ebon Mist. Formerly, I clarified. There was... an incident. We have since disbanded. We are aware, said Kumia. I frowned. Pardon? Kumia grunted. She leaned over to my father and whispered in his ear in wool. It seemed as though she was not used to the trade speech either. When she was done, my father nodded, then looked to me. The Jika believes it is because of Isolde's death that you have been brought here through the mist. For what purpose? I asked. For her, Kumia said, pointing to the child. She approached the baby in Ketra's arms, leaning over to inspect her. Nia, Kanaboro Ukia Lawiko, Velu Mia Eo Eo, Kana Kularu. What is she saying? I asked. She says the child appears exactly as prophesized, my father translated. Without a doubt, she is the child of doorways, the long lost daughter of the Veilman. My heart skipped a beat as I looked at my father. There had to be a mistake, I thought. A lot of strangeness had occurred in the last few days, but this was too much. The Veilman? I repeated in disbelief. The mortal god of the Alzarians? The one said to have soulbound with every luminous fright in Exesur. This is his daughter. I know you have questions, son said my father, and you deserve answers, but please trust me when I say, you have been thrown into a very, very dangerous game, a game the old gods have been playing for quite some time. They're in the endgame now, and we are the pawns. Echoes of Exesur is a production of Cult 1440. It was written, produced, and sound designed by Nick Walker. Sound effects courtesy of GarageBand, Freesound.org, and Sword Coast Soundscapes on YouTube. Link in the description. Original theme song composed by Brittany Rea. Links to her music in the description. For questions or comments, email us at cult1440productions at gmail.com.